In theory, it seems mind-boggling that some of us fall prey to a master manipulator. And when we do, society can deem us weak and naive. But what would it take for a sociopath or psychopath to take control of you? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. Welcome to Crossing the Line. I'm here with my executive producer extraordinaire, Christina Everett. Hi, Phelps. So this week is kind of a different episode for Crossing the Line. Only because I feel so passionate about this issue, about victims' rights, and really empowering women in general with important information that I can share. I just want to talk about the Sarah Everard case for a minute because we mention her in this episode later on and she's a victim and and a good example of what this is about yeah and I just don't want her to be a name I want people to know who she is Sarah was 33 uh, a marketing executive a Durham University grad she was kidnapped raped murdered in March of 2021 this year in London her killer he spent that night, March 3rd, hunting a lone female to kidnap and rape. His name is Wayne Cousins. He's a police officer. He stopped Sarah for breaking COVID rules. That was the ruse he used. He strangled her with his police belt. She was found a few weeks later. He was sentenced to life in prison in October 2021. And her murder initiated a nationwide discussion and an outcry regarding violence against women in the UK. Well, not just the UK, globally also. I mean, women everywhere were terrified because of the simple fact that this was a woman who was walking home from a friend's house at nine o'clock at night. It wasn't like 3 a.m. It wasn't in a sketchy part of town. It wasn't anything that anyone could say, well, she should have known better. It was a very regular everyday scenario where It made everyone's senses more heightened and aware of just walking down the block. You know, I was much more careful that week and that time just walking my dog because it literally is just anyone could have done anything to me at any time of day. And that alone is so frightening and you feel so helpless. And I think women everywhere around the world were just terrified. And he was a police officer. She trusted him. The fact that he was a police officer is a whole other loaded issue to get into. Once we found that out, that was even more terrifying because then how do we feel safe? I think a point to make here is it doesn't really matter who you are, what you do. I mean, there are bad, evil people in all walks of life, you know? And I guess if I if, if I can be happy about something here is that it really initiated this this discussion, this outcry that got people talking about violence against women. And as my guest today, Laura Richards, is going to describe coercive control. She's a crusader. She's she's the one who really brought this to the forefront, really. It's a strategic pattern of behavior that someone uses to dominate, to instill fear, to create codependency in a relationship. It's the method that people like sociopaths and psychopaths, cult leaders, and other monsters use to rule the lives of others. Most of these people you mention are male. Right. But I did just see this HBO docuseries, The Way Down, about Gwen Shamlin. That, I saw that too. 
she's that Christian diet guru. Right, with the big hair from Nashville. Yeah. So it's not unheard of that females can also practice controlling techniques. Oh, for sure. I mean, she did it well. Very, very well. And despite her death, the church continues to be very prominent. Here's the thing. When you start to learn about the psychology involved in these true crime stories that we talk about every week, you realize there's patterns. You see the same tactics over and over again. So that being said, we're going to try to answer the questions that come up when discussing this topic. How is it that some people stay with abusers until it's too late, drink the poison on demand, and get into the car with the creepy guy and wind up in the second location? Yeah, and I think it's really important to point out here early in the episode that while this is the territory of killers and rapists and cult leaders, it can also be the method that, you know, like a boyfriend or significant other uses to isolate your own friend into this life of loneliness and mental or physical abuse. So it doesn't normally end in death. Well, there's a reason it's called coercive control. To an extent, the person who's under the influence of someone using this technique has a choice in the matter, but it becomes more and more difficult to extricate yourself from an interaction with a person like this. Sometimes it's nearly impossible, mainly because you have no idea what the hell is going on. It's kind of like a horror movie, right? For the people on the outside, you hear the facts and you're yelling and screaming like, don't go into the basement. Don't do what he says, but it's easier said than done. Yeah. I was coercively controlled in my life once, and this was after writing dozens of books about female sociopaths and psychopaths. Really? Yeah. It came at me and I never saw it coming and did not realize I was immersed in it until it was too late. Do you want to share any details about it or do you just want to leave it like that? Well, I'll I'll share this. I I think this is a good analogy for coercive control. So you jump in the ocean and it's freezing cold and you stay in the water. And as you stay in the water, it's not as cold anymore, right? Mm. So you continually stay in the water and before you know it, you have hypothermia. That's a, okay. Yeah. So I had written all these books. I knew these types of women. I mean, I had studied them literally for years, but it came at me in a way, in a stealthy way. And bang, before I knew it, I was being controlled. It's like giving advice to someone, right? Like it's just, it's easy to give advice to your friend about something that you can That's it. look at from the outside. But yep. if you're in that exact same scenario, it's, and there's emotions involved and a history involved, it's different. I mean, I, w- I was in a vulnerable emotional state at the time. So yeah. there were, you know, different stakes. But when we hear our guests today talk about this, it's going to ring bells for people. Yeah, that's why I'm really excited to have her on, Laura Richards. She is basically the go-to expert on the subject. She really has become a, a voice for not only victims of domestic violence and coercive control, but just for violence against women in general. She really, really has stepped out in front of this in the last year. Let's take a quick break first though, and we'll be back with violent crime expert, Laura Richards. You're not gonna wanna miss this one. So our guest today is Laura Richards, a renowned expert on domestic violence and stalking. 
After a decade of analyzing violent crime at New Scotland Yard and training at the FBI, she uses her psychology degrees to analyze violent crime from a behavioral and preventative perspective. Laura is founder of Paladin, the world's first national stalking advocacy service, and has produced and consulted on shows like Criminal Minds, Dirty John, and more. So, Laura, welcome to the show. You worked in law enforcement for over a decade. How did that affect what you're doing now with coercive control and domestic abuse and really pushing all this stuff? My first 10 years was working major crime every day. And inadvertently, I was analyzing violence against women and girls cases because that's who was being abused and that's who was being killed. So I came to feminism in an odd way. I came because the work told me that there was a problem with women being killed by men. And I've reviewed, sadly, thousands of cases that all have very similar patterns. And the key pattern is that they're killed by men. And too often... From what I see, and and I saw at New Scotland Yard, but I still see it now, that women are blamed in their own murders and that we don't focus on what the main problem is, which is male violence. So it shaped everything that I do, and I still work with law enforcement now. It doesn't matter what the victim did, the substances she might have had in her system, where she came from, any of that, right? Yes. Although we don't always see it in relationships. It might be where there is no relationship, but someone wants a relationship. So it can be in the workplace. It can be in a cult, for example. So people tend to think that this is related to domestic violence, but actually it is far broader. Um, Most serial killer cases I've worked, where they've had relationships with women, they are coercively controlling. And not only to the women, they try and coercively control everyone around them. Can you explain what the signs are of coercive control for a woman? Yes, I mean, it's a very idiosyncratic behavior. And by idiosyncratic, I mean that it is bespoke and tailor-made to whoever the person is, to whoever the woman is. But normally you see things like isolation. You see that when a person wants to control another, they don't want the mums and the dads and the best friends involved in that relationship. They want utter mental um, perception monopoly so that they become the echo chamber. But in the early stages of a relationship, if I put it in that context, you see love bombing. So someone trying to move the relationship along very quickly, the whirlwind romance with grand declarations of, I love you. I want to die in in your arms, you know, being said on the second date, the third date, these kind of aphrodisiac statements. You see gaslighting. So reality distortion, um, charm, A lot of perpetrators are very charming, actually. They're not what most people think. Psychopaths. Yeah, many of them are psychopaths. They have personality disorders, but they blend in very well. And therefore, people tend to gravitate to them and their version. But it can be things like economic and financial abuse, i.e. either withholding money from someone or forcing them maybe to hold down two or three jobs or running up credit card debt. Um, It can be using the children and weaponizing them. So it really depends on the situation, but you see lots of different signs of control-related behaviors. And that's really what you're looking for, control-related behaviors. And you mentioned love bombing. I would love to know more about that. Like, What's the difference between love bombing and what, you know, sometimes you would feel in the early stages of a relationship, all that 
you know, the butterflies and the lust and the honeymoon phase, you know, if someone's sending you flowers, where's that fine line of infatuation and love bombing? Yeah, I mean, the first six months of a relationship are really exciting mm-hmm. and, and it should be. But if you have someone who's trying to monopolize your attention, your time, trying to move the relationship on very quickly from naught to 60, from making grand declarations of love or intimacy when there's been no time to build that intimacy, because any relationship takes time to get to know someone. Right whatever the relationship. So you want to see somebody in every situation, but if you've got someone trying to whirlwind, move the the needle, as in three months they want to get married, well, you can say that really you don't know each other. One is not trying to control and dominate the other. So all the while you're looking for control-related behaviors, because Mm -hmm. in any relationship, you want the person you're with to thrive and reach their full potential. You'd, you don't want to make their world small. You want to open their world up. That's when you see two people who thrive together is you're trying to vibrate at a higher level together, not that someone's trying to dominate somebody else and cut their wings and keep their world very small and become their world. So there is a difference. That's why we look to what's a healthy relationship, what's an unhealthy relationship. That's such an important point. Do you see a relationship between stalking and coercive control? Do the two usually co-mingle together? They can co-occur, yes. Oftentimes with domestic violence murders, we see coercive control prior to separation. And then on separation, we see sometimes coercive control-related behaviors continue, but it can become stalking where you have fixation and obsession. And really, it's that level of intrusion that you're looking for. But yes, there is a relationship there. And what really binds it together is that, and it's predominantly men who go on to kill in these situations, is that there is an entitlement and a sense of humiliated fury on rejection. How common is coercive control in relationships? Well, I would say male entitlement is very common. (laughs) And, you know, let's get real. You know, girls and boys are groomed in different ways throughout our life courses. And girls are taught that they should be polite, compliant, compassionate, have empathy, put other people's needs above your own. Boys are taught that they are the most important thing, that people should meet their needs and they're groomed to feel entitled and that they are first-class citizens. So the message is, and I see this with my niece and nephew, by the way, I see it in my everyday life and I know it as a woman who's grown up in the messaging that I received across my life course. So if you've got people and, and men in particular feeling that they're entitled, that they deserve to have their needs met, This sets the environment and the breeding ground for them to then feel that they have a right to own, to possess, to dominate and to control a woman. And again, this is where healthy relationship education is needed at a very early age so that people know, children know, not just the mechanics of sex, but how to have a healthy relationship and what's controlling and what's jealous and possessive behavior Normally, when it's when you're talking about seeing it at serious levels, it's a very unhealthy thing. I think it was you who told me that it's generally the sixth or seventh time a woman finally leaves. She tries up to six times, and usually the seventh time is when she gets out if she's alive to leave. Yeah, I mean, when you do have abuse happening, and I'm very 
carefully not saying an abusive relationship because the relationship cannot be abusive. There is an actor who is abusive to someone else. So when we even use that phrase, abusive relationship, we mask who the problem is. Wow. So right. And it's always at a subconscious level that we actually mask the perpetrator. So when you know there's abuse happening, normally it would take someone at least seven times to leave safely because they're emotionally invested, because they love that person, because maybe they have children with them, because they want them to change, because as women, we nurture and we empathize and we want to help the person. But the emotional investment is often what's overlooked, that when we love someone, we love deeply and we want to believe that they can change and we want the relationship. We just don't want the abuse. So that's why it does take a long time to unravel and for someone to realize, actually, this person's not going to change and I can't help them. And as I always say to every client I work with, it's not your job to fix an abusive or violent man. But we feel it is because we're conditioned to feel that we should be there to help, to fix, to nurture. And we feel it's our jobs because we're taught it as young girls. I blame all those movies we watched as kids that made us think that we could change the bad boy and he'll turn around and, and fall in love with us, you know, and then it's it's still a trope now. But I feel like that you like, go. mentally gets in your head and then you go for the bad boy and it's not like the movies. But you're exactly right. It's the messaging we see in movies. It's right. the songs that we listen to. It's it's all around us. And that's why I talk about grooming. Coercive control is about grooming, but actually we're groomed before we even meet somebody who is abusive to us. We've already been groomed by all that messaging that in Disney movies that we should be rescued, that girls are so helpless and we need a boy, a man to rescue us. No, we don't. So a lot of times I work with my clients to help them realize they must rescue themselves. There's no night that's going to come in. You have to do the work yourself and rescue yourself. So a lot of my work is self-empowerment, female empowerment, improvement, doing the work on you so that you're not exposed to somebody who's going to monopolize your vulnerabilities. That's a really great point. Let's take a quick break and get right back into this in a few. Now, one thing that I think with coercive control, it's like a slow burn, right? It's a, a gradual progression that happens because I would imagine that if someone's on the second date controlling, trying to get your password to your phone and tell you not to see your family, that's an obvious red flag and maybe too soon. But I would think that it's a slower progression and that's why it's so effective. A stealthy progression as well. Yeah, that's, that's very accurate. It's gradual and it's insidious. So it's never just the outright, give me the number or give me your password. It's let me help you with that. Or if you just give me your password, let me log in and I'll help you fix whatever is the problem with your internet, your Facebook, your whatever it might be. So normally it's under the guise that that person's helping you, supporting you, you know, making you feel good. It's not under a sinister tone. So it's a very gradual, slow burn process, but any form of grooming is, and you have to have trust there, first of all. So they do build that trust to begin with. So course of control is not only found in romantic relationships. You said this earlier, Laura. Explain to me what you mean. Yes. I mean, I've seen many workplace cases. I've also been a victim in a workplace situation. 
any place where you see power over, it can happen. Cuomo. Yeah. And if you think about Keith Rainier in the cult Nexium, oh, I mean, God. he was the master manipulator of coercive control. He weaponized everything that was good about women, flipped the script and could control in every asset or every facet, I should say, of those women's lives. And it was legitimized. Yeah. Yeah. He's a really good example. So I'm working with quite a few of the survivors of Nexium to create law change on coercive control. And people don't naturally think about the cult environment, but it operates on a trust basis that you have to believe in whoever is the guru or whoever is named as they give themselves these in really egotistical names, that even that should be a red flag. You know, Bhagavan, like Tiger King, you see it across multiple men in Tiger King. You know, the guru, they call themselves. So yes, these are the kinds of situations. Michael Manson used it. Uh, Most serial killers use coercive control. Ted Bundy, people don't think about him and they say, oh, he had all these relationships and he was such a charming man. No, he was a psychopath. And he coercively controlled most people around him. He was the Jekyll and Hyde. On that note, Laura, it's going to be very difficult, I think, and necessary to train police officers about coercive control, how to understand it when they get into an environment where it's happening, if it's going to be a law, right? I mean, that's got to be a big part of this, training police. Training is absolutely critical. I do it at least twice a week. I mean, you you want them to be open and receptive to learning new things. And when you have to talk about the patriarchy and misogyny and institutionalized sexism and gender bias and double standards, yes, these are difficult conversations to have, but we can't talk about the micro without talking about the macro. So I still invest heavily. I give my time to train law enforcement and anybody and everyone who wants the training, because yes, with any law change, You have to have good training, preferably before the law comes in. Especially when we have instances when law enforcement is involved in the crime itself. This is making me think of the Sarah Everard case and how it turned out that a UK police officer was the one who murdered her. You know that when a young woman disappears at 9pm and it's unusual, that it's not going to end well. With that particular case, the media were, were peddling to women, do not go out alone. Do not go out because it's dangerous. That is the wrong message to be sending. Really? The message should be to men actually curfewing them because if they can't be trusted, they should not be going out. (laughs) I love that. You flip the script, you see. Now, 40 years ago with the Peter Sutcliffe case, the same thing was said when women were being killed in Yorkshire and Manchester to women, do not go out. And they started arresting prostitutes because they were saying that he was killing prostitutes as if that was going to solve the problem. Now, within 40 years, the same wrong police tactic is being talked to. And the same in stalking cases. Victims are told, change your name, move house, don't go outside. Victims of domestic abuse, well, why didn't you leave him rather than let's stop him? How do we stop him? So the messaging is something I constantly challenge in live cases that happen, in law courts, to legislators, in policy. Uh, You have to do it all. There's no, you just do one thing. For our listeners who might be in a similar situation or might know somebody who's in a similar situation, what would you advise those people to do if they're noticing these early steps in 
a potential relationship that could have course of control or a potential stalking situation. What would you say to those people who are listening to this and can kind of relate but aren't sure if it's actually that dire of a situation, but they're concerned? Well, the first thing is there are red flags and they're all on my website. So have a look at laurarichards.co.uk. I've got many tabs on coercive control of what is it? What are the red flags? What are the behaviors? What if you think it's happening to you? What if you think it's happening to someone else? So the first thing is looking out for those red flags. The second thing is trusting your instinct. If your instinct is tweaking, then there's normally a problem. And I always say to people, most of us rationalize and we override (laughs) our gut instinct and we shouldn't. You know, we have more brain cells in our gut, in our stomach than a dog has in its head. (laughs) And it's there for a reason. They're survival mechanisms that we have. So once the gut instinct, which is why on Crime Analyst, I always say, be curious, ask questions, always trust your instincts. Those three things will always do you very well. So there's lots of advice out there. And I always say to people, if you're experiencing it, you're not alone. It's the most isolating and lonely feeling in the world, but you're not alone. And that's a good thing in a way that there are so many trained people who can help you and so many who have experienced it. The earlier you get out of a situation, the better. So rather than emotionally investing and going forward with something that you're unhappy with now, it's far better to get out of it safely and speak to somebody who understands what you're going through and to move out of it safely. You know, one thing that strikes me in this interview is how many times it takes before the victim leaves the abuser. Yeah. I mean, I get it. It's just hard to fathom on paper when I see it. It actually makes me sad. I immediately want to help this person, shake them myself and say, get out and stay out. That stat just struck me when she said, you know, six to seven times before the victim finally leaves, if she's still alive. Right. I mean, it's easy also to understand to an extent of how it happens because it's such a slow burn, right? Your love bombed at first, which is just like the honeymoon stage and seems so great. And you just kind of lost in thought at that point. And you kind of just lose focus of what's going on, what's happening around you. And it's easy for the people on the outside to see, but for someone on the inside, it sometimes takes a few more friends to say, look at what's happening before you realize it. A lifeguard. My analogy, it takes a lifeguard to say, hey, get out of the water. You know, you're going to freeze to death. Yeah. Speaking of that, Phelps, what did it take for you to get out of that situation you were in? If I'm being completely honest, it took a therapist to say, I need to send you to a psychiatrist and get you on some medication so you think logically. Because she explained to me that I was thinking with the emotional side of my brain. So I was throwing logic out the window. I'll tell you, the year and a half that I was involved in this is a blur to me. It felt like I was on a jumbo jet on the top of it, holding the reins, just cruising 500 miles an hour. And Is that a good thing? Or like, was it kind of, no, okay. Was it just like constant negative emotions or was it just kind of lost in lust type of obsession kind of feeling? It wasn't lust, obsession, anything like that. It was me just trying to really be codependent and do everything I could to make sure this person had what this person needed at all times, no matter what. I mean, there were days where I would stay up for three days at a time. So I was working all day in Atlanta. 
at night I drive five hours to go see this person and then I drive back and then I drive back and then I drive back and three days would go by and I'd be, holy shit, I haven't even slept. Was that because you wanted to or was that because the person was making you feel bad for not being there? Well, yeah, it was all about the coercive control. It was all about- Guilt? Yeah, yeah. It was all about, I'm going to die if you don't come here. I'm going to do this if you don't come here. You know, that sort of thing. So you're in it and you don't even realize you're in it. Did the therapist kind of help you see what was going on? That 100%. your own friends didn't? Like, what was it with that step with the therapist that made it click for you? Well, she pointed out to me, she's like, you know, your daughter's trying to explain to you that you're not doing the right thing and you're going to kill yourself. Your other kids are trying to tell you this and you're not listening because Mm. you can't listen. So I need you to start listening. Mm. And the way that you listen is you start to think with the logical side of your brain. So let's let's start there. And and trust me, and I'm a big advocate of medication Mm -hmm. for mental illness, because as soon as I started on this medication, I was a changed person. And I began to say, what the fuck has been going on in my life? That's why also the therapy is so great, too. You know, like sometimes you just need someone on the outside to hear what's going on and just give you an unbiased opinion. Who doesn't have stake in the game. Right. And just hearing their advice, it's not like it means more than those closest to you, but it's just like a wake up call. And it was a hundred percent wake up call. But on the other hand, when you come out of it, you feel like you blame yourself. You feel all sorts of guilt about what you've done. And geez, I did all of that. I I don't remember number one and number two, why would I do that? So Hmm. you don't really understand that you've been mentally ill yourself for that period, you know? And codependency is a strong drug. It really is. But there's help and I was able to get out of it. I'm fine now. It's been many, many years. But the coercive control is just so, so stealthy. It just sneaks up on you. It really, really does. I wonder if there's a support group for manipulative partners and cult leaders where they share their trade secrets. I put these guys... I put these guys in in my scumbag category. They know exactly what they're doing. And I do not think that courts take this seriously enough. We need longer sentencing guidelines for them. I mean, in my situation, I wasn't in any danger of violence or anything like that. And I could get out whenever I wanted to. I mean, that's the sad part, right? Like the courts don't take it seriously until it's usually too late. For the female, yeah. Right. Or or anyone in that kind of situation, you know, you need like more proof, more physical evidence, more whatever it may be. But it's just like it's so emotional and it's internal. I'm reminded of Dirty John because I I, I worked on that book with Deborah Newell. And Mm -hmm. I, I remember writing about how she had gone and filed for a number of restraining orders. And they literally told her until he does something to you, we can't do anything. Right. And that's bullshit. Yeah. That's complete bullshit. So what? He's got to hurt me before you can do something? I mean, that is just crazy to me. This doesn't have to mean that a person needs to hit you. Someone wielding power or control over you is abuse as well. Right. right? Emotional or mental. Absolutely. The stealthiest form of abuse imaginable, like as it was happening to me. I can assure you, I had no idea it was happening. It's a slow burn. 
And before you know it, you're questioning everything about yourself, your self-esteem, your self-worth, your entire mind, really. So sit down and try to think about this. I mean, you don't have to be hit or anything like that. It's as Laura said, it's, it's something that you don't realize is happening, but once you do get out. And with that, we will be back next week, crossing the line. And I hope you subscribe. If you or someone you know needs help, please visit Laura Richards' website at laurarichards.co.uk. Or you can visit the hotline.org website to learn more about getting out of an abusive relationship. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.